You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Inside the Musicians Guild. I'm your host, Steve Choi. Thanks for being here and thanks for listening. This is just your semi regular reminder that corporate mainstream news media is not your friend and rather your enemy, as it is a tool used by the ruling class to manipulate normies and public opinion into serving their agenda. So, let's talk about some music, shall we? Specifically, maybe live music something that's been making pretty big waves uh, all week has been the announcement of the When We Were Young Festival. Um, (laughs) Even now, just starting to talk about it, I'm starting to giggle and chuckle a little bit because the sheer magnitude of the amount of bands they're trying to fit into a single day is a little bit laughable, you know? Everybody's really quick to try and get some kind of viral hot take and everybody's cracking jokes about it being a fire festival and whatever. That's a bit of a stretch. I mean, the circumstances couldn't be more different, let alone almost opposite. You know, it's not multi-day. You're not on some remote island you have to travel to and the cost is nowhere even in the same range. So I don't really vibe with that comparison. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about yet and why these jokes are being made, uh, When We Were Young is a festival put on by Live Nation, which is basically the giant corporation that has a monopoly on live music, concerts, and festivals. And for 2022, they announced a lineup of something like 62 or 63 bands over three stages in one day. And all of these bands are uh, from the mid-early aughts. Um, You know, a lot of them are big emo and indie and pop-punk artists from that era. And uh, definitely the initial surge of excitement, I understand. But I also think a lot of these jokes and criticisms are coming from a legit place of experience. Uh, A lot of the first takes were that, you know, Live Nation was behind Astroworld and their lack of attention to certain logistics is what allowed that tragedy to happen. However, I'm not really worried about that because I never really underestimate corporations response to anything that fucks with their profit you know you can always rely on them to do what it takes to rectify those situations they wouldn't necessarily do it for the good of society or the betterment of whatever product they offer or service but they will do it to ensure you know their stock prices and their profits remain unharmed So as far as that goes, I think the festival is going to be probably extra well-planned and extra safe. I've also seen a lot of, you know, my friends 
people who work uh, as road crew for bands and also people who work in production for these large festivals kind of have the general response of, you know, why is it that you think that everybody's just throwing this together willy-nilly with no thought, experience, and, you know, knowledge? And I understand that too. And as usual, myself and the type of thinking done here at the Musicians Guild, I managed to have the luxury of seeing all the sides and opinions and I'm not doing it on purpose. It's just how my mind works. It's just where I land. Uh, It's also admittedly entertaining for me to watch this discourse and this battle and watching the surge of all these emotions and cognitive biases regarding what different opinions around this festival are. That said, pretty much every opinion I've seen has been valid to a certain degree. So, maybe we should get into festivals a little bit. Uh, Festivals are a big part of being a live musician. And if you get to a certain point where most musicians want to get to, where you or your band or whatever you're a part of gets to a certain level, you start playing festivals. Festivals are the sort of thing that conjure ambivalent feelings for both musician and crew. But one thing that can't be denied is is how hard it is for a touring crew. Now, if you're already on the road, you're in your bus or your van, stopping through a festival, completely throwing the schedule you've gotten into of getting to the venue in the afternoon and doing all this stuff on this timescale gets thrown out the window because, generally speaking, no matter whether you're headlining a festival or opening, the check-in is usually in the morning just because of the volume of bands that the production has to deal with. So for your crew, this means basically mapping out and traveling much larger and longer distances, just getting your gear to a stage from where you parked, finding the production office to get your passes, your dressing room to get your water, whatever half bag of chips you're going to get. This all becomes not just a little bit harder, but magnitudes harder. And those are just a few examples of the general ecosystem that road crew have to deal with in a festival. And what it creates is this little snow globe a microcosm society where you start to see social hierarchy and those larger bands with more attention getting paid more uh, with more resources have better access to festival resources to help them. Whereas the smaller bands, you know, their tour managers and their techs, they have to work a little bit harder to get their stuff handled, to get that forklift or that truck to get their gear from the van or bus to the stage or whatever it is. In theory, you know, professional productions don't want it to be this way. And the bigger and better festivals we've played have been very good about organization and treat every band the same. But in reality, it's happened the other way a lot of times as well. Now for the bands that do all this stuff themselves, because they're hardworking, they don't want to spend the money on a crew, So much respect for those bands. 
back when we did Warp Tour, all these vans driving themselves in a van, still having to check in at 8 in the morning, just sleeping under the van because it's too hot inside during the summer. I never had the gusto to do that, and uh, I have so much respect for those that do. So when I just think about that aspect of festivals, I start to look at one day, three stages, 60-something bands, um, you know, the approximate rough math over a 12-hour day kind of looks to me like, you know, all three stages will have pretty much every band playing a 30-minute set with a 20-minute changeover. Well, here's another aspect of festivals that's really, really common also, which is in theory, all of this works out. You got this many bands, you have this much time that the show will be going for. It'll fit like this. But inevitably, there's always problems, whether it be technical difficulty, people being late, uh, a whole plethora of things that could go wrong. Bands, sometimes, not that rarely, will just straight up go on stage like on time, but just go over their set time. And generally, what ends up happening is that everybody but the headliner ends up having to cut their set short to make up for that time. It's happened to us. It's happened to other bands. I remember the last time I saw a rocket from the crypt at a festival at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. I think they were getting the axe for Iggy Pop to come on. They were not happy about it. Not happy at all. Smashed guitar and everything. Anyway, so when I look at this festival setup and I see that, knowing the typical like bullshit that goes on between bands and power tripping and crews, I don't see how that's not going to be a factor, but I don't think it's a thing. I mean, anybody who stage manages, anybody who does production, this stuff has gone on at festivals for years. So, you know, I hope everybody has fun. I hope that nothing goes wrong at this festival because at the end of the day, while it is sad to me that this is one of the biggest festival announcements because it's nothing new, it's all throwback, it makes me sad just like how modern rock radio stations or quote-unquote modern rock radio stations still regularly play songs from 20 years ago and they don't sound outdated. That is very troubling to me, but that's a separate subject. Uh, I hope we're all wrong about the potential downfalls of this festival because these downfalls mean trauma and tragedy and just a shitty time for a lot of people. And ultimately, as you know, my mind and here at the Musicians Guild, what we're all about is people enjoying what they enjoy and having a good time as long as it doesn't involve oppressing or hurting other people. You know, so I want everybody that goes, that's plenty ongoing. I hope they have a great time. I hope that it is just enough of a shit show to entertain the evil little child in me so that I get to hear about great stories of people being egotistical assholes 
for my own evil childish amusement, as I have as much desire to attend that festival as I would a Republican convention in Florida. But to all my friends and family, my peers who will be performing and working that day, respect to you. I hope it goes as easy and enjoyable as possible. Okay, so on to today's guest. Uh, today's guest is an old friend. His name is Nick Reinhardt. We know him from his days playing in his band Terra Melos, who was on Sergeant House with us. Uh, also from Northern California, where I'm from. Uh, Nick now is involved with projects such as Disheveled Cuss, Undo K from Hot, and Vertical Scratchers. You may know him from seeing him in various demonstration videos for various effects pedals for various companies. Even does some stuff for that one little company called Fender or something. I'm not sure. Maybe it's like a boutique thing. When I think of the word authentic, and when I think about what it really means, outside of the context of some crappy mainstream pasta sauce, like when I really think about what the word authentic means, being true to the original form, uh, Nick is definitely one of the most authentic people I know, both in how he lives and communicates, but also in his music his approach to writing and sound, and how he curates his general universe of what he works on. So often, you know, I see guitarists that are technically proficient kind of relegate themselves to tradition and convention. And so often I see those pushing the boundaries and pioneering new things lacking technically as they kind of venture out to run away from that, uh, I guess, oppressive system of music or thinking. So it's awesome for me to know a musician and guitarist like Nick, who's able to bridge those worlds so well. As I've said to Nick before, he's important because he's loyal to the instrument of the guitar and being a guitarist. But he's also loyal to the idea that he wants to present this instrument and have people hear it in a way they never have before. And this is something that he hasn't done just once or twice. It's something he does on the regular, all the time. Every time he picks up the guitar, he has the potential to do this. And it's something that we tried to do in RX, but in a completely different way. We did it through music and with an ensemble containing multiple people. And Nick has done this too with his band. But the fact that he's able to capture so much of that innovative power by himself and only himself most of the time is, I mean, it's just clear evidence of his creative importance. It's so easy for people in that position who know they're viewed that way to kind of unknowingly take on this level of hubris or arrogance without even realizing it. And what I love about Nick is, like most of my friends and peers, 
he has none of that. He's not only authentic in his music, he's authentic in his view of the world and the things he enjoys, even in contexts where he's just going to regularly get shit for it. And those are some of my favorite kind of people. So in this conversation, we talk about burritos, about Nick's sonic inspiration through uh, sound design and film. We talk about home studio setups and, uh, you know, janky shelving that look nice. As always, with everyone, I get into his routines, his habits, his idiosyncrasies. Uh, We talk about, you know, whether or not we would do music for a McDonald's commercial. Um, Sort of happiness versus principle. We talk about how he wanted to ask me about being on the pod and how I wanted to ask him to be on the pod, but we were both too afraid to ask each other for some reason. Um, So yeah, it was a really great conversation. It's a little bit of a longer one. Hopefully it feels short for you like it did for us. Thank you for always being here. Here's my conversation with Nick Reinhardt. Oh, did you have burritos earlier? California burritos, like you said I, you were gonna. I did, yeah. I did get a California burrito. <laughs> um, what is like? What's your salsa style with the California burrito? Um, it's just like whatever is there. Just okay, uh, like gotcha. usually like one of each, and then like I'm always confused about the greens. Like if it's not labeled, it's like what am I getting myself into? <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> So it's like, it's like whatever the greens are, like, I'm, I guess I'd be like a Verde fan, but the ones that sort of like looks like guacamole, but isn't that one's scary. Cause that, cause that could usually be like very intense at times, you know? Yeah. I love that one a lot. I gotta say, but yeah, it, there is something cool about like San Diego and a lot of inland, like whether it's Fresno or up to Sacramento style Mexican, the yellow paper Mexican taquerias that (laughs) have just the standard red, like super fire gut uh, salsas that they just (laughs) give you by default. There's no salsa bar and a bunch of choices and stuff. Yeah, there's red and green. Yeah, I'll take both, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, and those always come in the smaller solo plastic things, (laughs) you know what I mean? But like the tiny, tiny ones. It's like, that's just like, that's like a one bite's worth, (laughs) basically. Yeah, but see, for some reason, like I know when it comes in the little tiny ones, it's usually going to be like kind of gnarly tasting. There's not a <laughs> lot of flavor. It's not like, you know what I mean? It's very right. deep or anything. It's like this <laughs> yeah. watery, weird red. Exactly. Just like bitter astringency or something. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm down for all that. So <laughs> That's cool. Um, is there... How do you feel about LA Mexican food? Because it's so different than Northern California Mexican food, you know? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because like once I got settled, 
I don't go to taco trucks and there's so many taco trucks around. And for some reason, I really have to be in a mood to go to like a taco truck. And I, that's kind of crazy because it's like, well, that's where you get some of the best stuff, especially the deep ones. You know, everyone's like taco zone, taco zone. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, taco zone's great, but there's other taco trucks that aren't taco zone, you know, um, but I don't I'm, I need to be in a mood to like taco truck, I guess. So, but I, I do love LA Mexican food. I mean, it's some of the best Mexican food I've ever had here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have one back at home, like your hometown that you still love that's still there? Uh, you ever heard of Carolinas or Adalberto's? Uh, Adalberto's? Yes. Like Adalberto's. No. Um, the, it's the same spot, Carolinas. It just depends on like which location. It, it'd be a different name. Yeah. But um, when I was still living in Sac in like 2009, I I'd been living in a house with a friend for like four years, and then probably in my last year there, discovered that spot and was like, oh my god, and that that's like you know yellow rapper style, like open 24 hours kind of thing. So that nice. that is my spot. So even, anytime I'm up there recording or doing stuff, it's like I have to go to Carolinas or Adalberto's a couple times. You know, what's your order there? I mean, I'm very like routine and I don't stray. So that is the Cal. That's my favorite California burrito at that spot. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. Is it like the is it the pure style that's just the fries and asada and the accoutrement, or is it the the more modern style with like the rice and beans still? This is rice, like this is pure style. Like there might be a shot of sour cream in there, but I don't think so. I think it's cheese, steak, and fries, basically. <laughs> Free. Yeah, yeah, not not like. None of this like woo woo like oh all this fancy stuff in there like no no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. That that's something that really went through the Americana filter and created something like really wonderfully gross and delicious and like cool, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh so thanks for being here, man. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, for taking the time to, you know, chat. Thanks for having me. Looking forward. Um, I see we are uh, blessed with the presence or your presence in your music room. That's right. Yeah, this is where uh, this is my second bedroom. That is just it's funny. I I'm always like, is this a studio? I know a lot of people are like, oh, my home studio. Yours looks like a home studio. But I'm like, I don't know if this qualifies as a home studio, but I've done a lot of recording in here and I have gear to record. So I guess that's what it is. <laughs> it really looks like a home studio to me because you have a lot of your stuff like nicely on shelves, whereas my pedals and drum machines and everything are just like strewn about and like thrown Dude, everywhere. You know? I will send you a photo of the pedal shelf behind me after this that you could include with the podcast. It is not nice. It's bad. Like it, it would like trigger anyone. Like Dude, there is a there's like the top shelf is four pedals, like a four pedal deep stack with a wah pedal on top. And, and a, there's a wah, actually there's a wah, there's like, there's four deep and then a wah pedal and then a metal zone just like strewn on top. All of a sudden it's gnarly. It's like insane looking. That's 
beautiful in so many ways. The fact that you have like on top of the heap, two of the most like, I mean, those might be the most iconic, my first pedals, right? Two, like <laughs> yeah, a crybaby yeah. and a metal yeah. zone, right? Like, What's funny so. is actually <laughs> the, the wah is uh, a Dan Electro wah. It's like a really, really bad wah pedal, like a plastic oh, okay. junky, like $30 or whatever. <laughs> like a multi, it's a multi-effect wah with different wah sounds, but it's actually my favorite wah, funny enough, but... Is it one of those ones that they made look like a classic fifties car color? That's right. Like all it's that series. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had, I don't remember what I had from that series in the early aughts, but I had a couple of things from, I had a couple of Dan electro pedals and they, they lasted like four days on tour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's well, the, um, the delay, it's called the shift daddy and it had, you know, like looked like a car and stuff. And that was an early, like, first oh, yeah. cool pedal that I had in Terramelos that I used and it, it would break and like I had a little ways of like fixing it or taping it back together or something but actually I think yeah that like that's kind of a hard pedal to find now and it's like slightly more expensive because it did really cool things like basically shifting with the rocker between delay times so you would get the like kind of weird sound you know when you're going back and forth and it was actually a really really cool unique pedal that is just one of the classic things of like oh it's cheap and it's 40 dollars, but actually it does really cool stuff you know yeah, that sounds rad. I never knew that about that pedal. I guess I was all young and judgy, so I didn't want to go near that pedal, you know, but yeah. you were, uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, I also think it's rad that somebody like you, who so many people would be like, consider one of the, you know, foremost authorities on pedals and effects, hence the name of one of your entities, pedals and effects, uh, they would think that you have everything immaculately sorted out in your little room and, and, you know, and personally, I love knowing that your thing is like Millennium Falcon style. If it gets you where you need to go, it doesn't matter. It's all good, right? That's right. Yeah. And I mean, that, I guess that just sort of, that I theory just kind of applies to my existence as a human. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, it's not to say I don't like having a tidy room. The problem is like specifically with having so much stuff and not enough space to sort it out. You end up with like stacks and piles, no matter how tidy you try to keep things. It just gets that way. Like for instance, my guitar stand, which is a, one, two, three, four, five guitar stand that's right here to my right. It's supposed to hold five guitars and it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guitars crammed in. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I'm I like, well, what, what if I want to pull out that one guitar that I haven't touched in three years? I want it right there. So it's like they're, they're smashed together with like the strap lock jamming into like the fretboard of the one behind it. And it's, you know... <laughs> I mean, that's just like my style, you know, just like I just roll with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, fr from this angle, like if I were to take a screenshot of what I'm looking at, like with all the green, yellow and red and like the Rasta colors, it looks very clean and nice. So. Nice. Yeah. I mean, like it is tidy. Like I have a nice, like I said, I mean, it is like a home studio and like over here I can see drum machines and keyboards and like a shelf full of toys and there's some more samplers and there's samplers you know it's fun it's it's fun having like a a room like this 
you know, and regardless of how it's organized, it is, this is my first time like ever living in a space where I had this available. So, you know, having a creative space like this, regardless of what you call it is pretty incredible, you know? It is. And it really opens up a new level of creativity, having that accessible at any time of the day, like whenever it strikes, it's good to get into a routine, but I think it's it's crucial to have it available like at any time. You don't have to drive anywhere. You can literally go in your underwear, sit down and start getting an idea down or adding or just with a totally blank morning mind, like get into stuff or whatever it is, right? I don't need to tell you, you know what I mean? Because yeah. you're obviously living it. But Totally. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're just sitting on the couch and I'm like, oh, this is a cool idea, Um I want to I, I want to program a drum beat right now or I want to go like record I have that demo that's lying around and I have this lead idea over it or something it's just really like now in 2022 it's just so easy to like capture things and plug stuff in it's it's you know like in front of my monitor here is my main amp that I use at home, which is it's called a Fender Mustang uh, GT which is like their modeling line and it's a really, really Sick. good amp modeler. I don't get paid to say that. <laughs> uh, and it's got like an XLR out on it. And then so my XLR out goes straight into my Apogee Duet, which you're listening to me through right now at home as a listener. And uh, and I'm just like, I can't believe it. it. This sounds so good. I've like made worked on records this way, like worked on other people's records this way. And you know, this, we're not talking like a line six pod sound like this, whatever junky crappy two thousands thing. This is like high quality, high fidelity recording, you know? And I just think it's so cool that I could just come in here in this funny unorganized room and just record stuff that easily. Like within, I could come in here and within five minutes be like recording guitar that is going to go on a record. That's going to sound good, you know? Exactly. And isn't that awesome where we can be eating lunch, put down our plate, sit in the sink, just go straight back to work, right? I mean, <laughs> whatever that, it is. That's literally like basically my day to day. Me too, right? So, um, and yeah, like you were saying about amp modeling, it's cool to finally be here. Musicians like yourself and me who have been around for a long time have been waiting a long time for this time. <laughs> time. Yeah. And because for so long, you could tell the difference. And now we are at a point where you cannot tell the difference. You really can't. And it's negligible at that point. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not at a point where, well, I have played shows with this particular, like, 112 combo Fender thing. I have not played, like, I ha well... I'm like, catch. I'm, I, I was going to say, I haven't played any shows with this yet. I'm not there. And then I was going to say, well, I have played a show. I've played like some noise improv things. And I was like, but I haven't played any rock shows. And I was like, wait, I did play a rock show with it. So maybe I have fully arrived at like this thing. You know, the, it's weird not playing with a real like dangerous guitar amp behind you in terms of like on a stage. That I'm just, yeah. I'm not there yet with it, but in terms of like everything logistically and, you know, the weight of the amp and the sound quality and everything else about it, I'm like, dude, like this is what Pete, you should, everyone should just have this. It's so cool, you know, and there's so many different options for like digital stuff, you know, but I guess the difference is maybe 
let's say 10 years ago, if you're, if you have a pro pro tool session pulled up and, um, whatever, like the amp modeling stuff was back then, whatever that was called, you know, and it's like crashing your computer and taking up too much RAM or whatever. And, you know, nonsense and plugins and stuff that I guess that was like as close as it got as far as recording goes. And now it's just like way easier than that, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, it was Amplitube, and I used it on demos a couple times, but it sounded so bad that even for a demo, it hurt my feelings. Like, it made my idea sound worse because the tone was so bad. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, It was kind of like a Line, like a line 6 pod type thing. Like, it wasn't good <laughs> totally. sounding, you know what I mean? Actually, I, I have a tidbit about that. Those early Marnie Stern records, those were like, that's the guitars you hear on the record is Amplitube. I believe like it's straight up her like her at home straight into the computer with plugins pulled up and she you I think the Marnie Stern tone was like I think it was the Eddie Van Halen preset I believe I remember hearing that whoa so some people can make it work yeah I was gonna say then I'll amend my statement like everything I just didn't have the mojo for it then I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing. Well, also, Weezer did an entire tour using Line 6 pods, allegedly. You know, like, who knows what was really going on? But I think that was, like, the the gimmick of that tour. And you're like, well, if I had a Line 6 pod now, now that I just know, let's say, how to, quote-unquote, dial in a tone, I could probably maybe get my work my way around a pod or the amplitude thing, you know, assuming I had a computer that could run it. But you know what I mean? It's just like, we grow you know, and you get better at figuring stuff out. So I'll bet you and I probably could figure out like an amplitude setting that we were stoked on. Yeah, for sure. If we pick the right genre, if it's not like too technical and you don't need like a tight distortion, if it's like thick, lush, cordy and like singular, like maybe some fucking champ style riffage, like I can see it us find like finding a spot. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as like, an actual like nice guitar tone where you know you're driving the pre-tubes and it's got this response where the harder you dig in the more it breaks up and all this stuff like obviously not <laughs> right that's always the thing too just to quick tangent on that remember like i don't know i guess it's been a long time since i've done this but remember there was like the era of like when you're making a recording and uh i remember we used to do this we did this with a few Terramelis records where it's like oh the bass we're just recording the DI and then we're going to reamp it afterwards. Totally. Which Re-amping like is a huge, yeah. Huge, but that's still like psycho to me to be like, "Oh my god, like I can ever wrap my head around recording dry direct guitar and then reamping it." Obviously, there are ways around it. You split the signal and you can get the real tone and then, you know, have a an a option to reamp and maybe we did that with bass but i just remember it was we were so like grossed out by it like ugh, we're just plugging the bass like straight in and then we're gonna like get the sound later this doesn't feel right to like be playing to this you know yeah i've had very similar i guess that would fall under like an ethical thing right it's like whether it's even for us not just for everybody but like our own ethics around what feels or what would make a good recording with the energy that we want, you know? Yeah. uh, Yeah. And that's just, that just feels wrong doing it that way. (laughs) So even now, are you kind of not down with reamping? Do you try to avoid it? 
now I'm just like, why don't we just, and I, I think we probably eventually did this with a Terra Mellis record after having done it for a few times. It's like, why don't we just dial in the tone now? Why don't we spend a little bit of time? You know, there's like option paralysis with just everything that's at our fingertips now. And same with um, the difference for anyone listening to this that, you know, is interested in this long ramble about DI recording. Um, you know, so Amplitude, what you're what you're doing is you're capturing back in the day, or I guess some people could still do it now. Your guitar is plugged somehow into your computer. You're capturing the dry signal, and then you're coloring that through a plugin, right? And you could do whatever you want. You could edit it for a year until it sounds the the perfect tone, which that's cool. But the version that I was saying, where I'm using this. Um, amp this fender mustang modeler thing that goes straight into my duet uh preamp thing and then i'm just capturing that i'm just like no no i don't care about editing this after i've got a good sound right now go with it you know so it's almost like we hit this spot where it's like oh endless possibilities but i'm like i'm good on endless possibilities i want to just commit to it you know me too that's my process which is like I don't know. I feel like there's just a lot of energy lost in constantly pushing decisions later. And then all of a sudden you have all these decisions to make, whether it's reamping and editing and comping and stuff in the musical process. And you lose a lot of energy. I love the energy of having to get the tone now, commit now. You know what I mean? Like I'm with you on that 1000%. Yeah, there's a good there's a good balance between having options, especially when you're creating music, you know, like there's so many things you can do in a computer now and but you just got to basically pick and choose, you know what I mean? And like literally just capturing a bass tone or a guitar tone, I'm like I think we're good. We can just grab it and sure if we want to split it, you know, and capture this just in case for whatever reason cool but i would say nine out of ten times i'm like no we're good we got it that's fine that tone right there and you need to eq it a little bit cool but like you know i'm using um, we're good you know we can move on (laughs) totally yeah i feel you man um so we were talking about before we got on this subject we were talking about kind of like how cool it is to have access to a creative space immediately in your living area you know because whether you are struck with like sudden inspiration or an idea pops into your head or you just find that you're in the right vibe and you can finally just get in there and work on stuff. So like for you, do you have prime times of the day? Are you, uh, it happens at all times of the day. What's your steez? I was actually trying to explain this to a non musician friend yesterday about (laughs) like, the musician creatives like schedule. And um, I keep a daily log of things that I do every day. Like I've been doing it for a few years. My friend, Josh Klinghoffer, formerly of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Uh he has been doing this for 15 years. He has a daily log where he notes everything of his life that happens throughout the course of the day. So for instance, today it would be had lunch, uh, at taco spot with my dad and then interview with Steve like that. That's what I'll put down for the day. And so it's, it kind of holds myself accountable for doing stuff throughout the day. Right. And I was kind of explaining this list to someone and I was like, there are a lot of days on over that I've can 
you know, scroll through and be like, whoa, like literally what I had written in that day was just did nothing, watched a movie, ate. You know what I mean? Like there are there are many, many days where I don't do anything. And I think it's, you know, the classic thing where it's like, well, you know, we are we're kind of always working on stuff in your head, thinking on things. You know, you might be up really late just like literally thinking about a song. And it's hard it's even hard for me to justify it to myself, especially by keeping myself accountable on this log. And when I do see a day where it's like uh, picked up the house and went and got a coffee. I'm like, woo, ouch, like that. I burned like four <laughs> days in a row doing that. But I'm like, but no, actually, there, all that time you're you're working on stuff. I may not actually be in front of a computer or a guitar amp or with a guitar in my hand, but like I'm doing stuff just in our own way, you know. And so then when you are ready for inspiration to strike, you know, like um, last week I was like. I was burnt. I burned out like seven demos, like, like three or four days in a row. I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to, I have this riff and I'm going to complete the song. I'm going to complete the guitar parts. Then I'm going to come over to the computer. I'm going to program the drums. I'm going to record the guitars. I'm going to record the bass and I'm going to drop those on my phone and ha- like start a demo folder on my phone. You know what I mean? So it was like, there was a week where I was like, bam, 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 like busy, busy, busy. But a nice. lot of all that information that got put into an MP3 file, it's, you know, you understand it and other musicians would understand that. But there's like, you know, like, how about this? One of the songs that I did demo the other day is literally a guitar riff from when I was like my first punk band when I was 19. You know what I mean? Awesome. That's, Those are that's, the best. Yeah, it's been like floating in the back forever, and I'll like it'll get stuck in my head sometimes, and I'll like I never maybe we had completed it as kids or something, but now I'm like you know kind of doing the math in my head, like well where does it go from here? Oh wait, that okay should do that cool, and then you know there's a lot of thought that goes into that. You know what I mean? So I guess um, I don't have a schedule. It just sort of like you know it could be. My, my creative times could be anything from like, all right, woke up around nine, did dog stuff, ate breakfast, drank coffee. It's noon. Like maybe I'll like saunter into my, you know, like studio and start doing this or whatever. We'll see, you know, or not. Maybe I'll wait till, you know, it might be like at noon. I'm like, oh man, I just, I'm ready for a nap actually. <laughs> I was up late last night. So I'll take a nap and then wake up in a little bit and be like, all right, now it's time. So I guess it's very inconsistent is what I'm saying, but there's always things flowing through your head. It's that's the part that's hard to turn off. That's a constant thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And the anxiety about the lives we lead is also constant. So in that regard, although it may not be very visibly productive work, it is exhausting work. Yeah. No yeah. It's not like um, working as a, a marketing director for a startup where, oh, yeah, I, I work, you know, eight to five, but then like, oh, wow, we got a lot of stuff to do. So I'm still on the computer after that. Like you can you can shut that off right when you're done for the day, whereas like doing the stuff that we like to do, I guess what you are, our, our jobs, um, you, that doesn't get shut off ever. You're always working, you know, or thinking about stuff, even on a subconscious level that's there. Even if it means you're like, 
in the car, like driving to the grocery store, like tapping your fingers on the steering wheel, you like you're doing some work in your head on a thing, you know? So it's a con true. It's constant for sure. I mean, how many times have those little things become something much bigger? You know? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. And, and no yeah. one would, unless you are like deep into this world, that might not make sense, but it makes perfect sense when, you, when you're when you a creative artist or whatever, and you kind of pull yourself back and be like, whoa, yeah, no, like I, there's seven days in a row that I didn't do anything, but like, I know then on the eighth day, I'm like, oh, but I demoed four songs that day. Like I was up to some shit on those seven days <laughs> for sure. You know, totally. Totally. I don't have like a schedule like that either. Um, but I ask people that because, you know, there's a lot of people that after they kind of do the free form thing, they try to apply like some structure and discipline to their life. And then that leads to their music making and creativity. And uh, for people like me who always battle with ADD, actually, um, that's kind of torturous. But I've seen a lot of people thrive under that too, where they're like, Monday through Friday, during these times, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make this amount of songs and do this. And I kind of sometimes have envy where I'm like, man, that, that would be nice, you know? <laughs> but I've tried that. And if I'm being honest with myself, it's not how I'm built and it's not, it's not for me, you know? I mean... I've definitely thought about like what could be accomplished with that sort of schedule and totally respect it. Exactly. And if it was something that I could do, which I, and I have done that for stretches where I'm like, cool, I'm going to grind, especially like being inspired by a friend or someone where I'm like, whoa, they're just like, they wake up and they're like doing this and this and this and like hustling all across town and doing all this stuff. And I'm like still having my coffee or whatever, but I'm like, you know, it's just, it's not for me either. I like loose and I feel like, um, through the things that I've done, I've, I've built my life to be loose like that and have those days of nothing, nothing, nothing. And then, I mean, or even dude, like literally like, Oh, you know what? I kind of have this like thing in my head. Like I'm going to just record myself. I'm going to do a video today and I post a video of myself just playing this riff online today or something. You know what I mean? Like I like loose totally. that that's sort of my thing. I like to be like, uh, I'm going to go to coffee and get a, go get lunch today. And I don't know, like fart around for a bit and then maybe go do this, you know? And like, I totally am into the hustle and grinding. Sometimes it works, but I just, like I said, I've structured my life to where I can exist this way. Like I, I make it work in terms of like, you know, the lifestyle I want to live and what I can afford to do and what I can afford not to do and just keeping it loose. That's, that's what I like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same, but to specify for me, it's specifically like in the creative mind for that. I mean, like when it comes time to rehearsing, recording, touring, like I'm totally down to grind. I'm, I'm down with full days and structure. I just mean, as far as like me, getting ideas out of myself has to be totally loose. And sometimes Same. I'll have an inspired week and sometimes I'll go months where Same. I don't really feel inspired and I don't really play. And I had a lot of guilt about that for a long time. Cause I'm like, I gotta be grinding. I need to be constantly sharpening this blade of my craft. And there are periods of my life where that's happened naturally just because the band is working a lot or the people you're around or the projects you're on. And I find that just kind of following that current for me works for me much better than putting myself through boot camp and the grindstone stuff. Yeah. Totally. I agree. 
I I do just feel guilty sometimes. Where I'm like, wow, what what? How many more songs could I be writing or records could totally. I be completing if I was on a structured schedule? But whatever, you know, like. But then again, and maybe you feel this way too. I'm like, but I'm happy with what I like my output. I'm like, of course, it would always be cool to like, you know, I don't know, put out a record a year or whatever, be like, you know, a little bit more quick with this stuff. But again, I I feel satisfied with my output, my creative output and the timeline to get there, you know, so it feels good. Yeah, word. Yeah, I the only thing I get down on myself about is not spending more time to like just get better in my eyes, you know, how, however subject that is subjective that is, but sure. you know, you know, I guess we're always We all have that thing that we're battling, uh, uh, you know, whatever we're getting down on ourselves about. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, so when like somebody who looks up to you asks you kind of like guitar questions and they're asking you about stuff because I view you as one of I just think you're a really awesome, uh, valuable member of like the music and guitar community because you're somebody that's actually pushing the thinking outside of the instrument. You have your instrument, the guitar, uh, which is your vessel, but it's clear that your mind is thinking way, way beyond that instrument all the time because you're taking this vessel and you are taking it into terrain and uh avenues that you don't traditionally see it in you're modding stuff in it in a sense you know like a, a clumsy analogy would be like you're like managing to off-road with like a mini coupe or something you know what i mean or something like that sure. so when they ask you stuff like do you practice like what do you do how do i get better like how do i wh- what's your like approach to your response to that um you know like Another good analogy to that, which I'm not going to try and make this about myself, but maybe some might be like, oh, it's kind of, actually, I will make this analogy about myself because this was like a highly inspirational figure for me, Rodney Mullen, the skateboarder, and like what he did for skateboarding, he he changed things, you know, and this is not to suggest that I am an early you know, person to like have changed stuff, but like there are guitar players like that to me, Adrian blue, you know, obviously Jimi Hendrix and stuff like where there's like, there were the Rodney Mullins of the music, the guitar world, you know? So that's right. kind of another one. So if, if, if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with Rodney Mullen, just Google Rodney, go on YouTube and look up Rodney Mullen and you'll be like, Whoa, okay. I see what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, like if someone's like, how, how did you end up at that spot? Like, what do you do? I guess, like, I mean, literally practicing. Um, I don't, I've, I realized, um, I don't really like practice anymore. My version of practicing will be like obsessing over, uh, like, let's say a piece of gear that could be a guitar, that could be a pedal, could be an amp, a sampler the last couple months um i was really into like learning the an sp404 sx type sampler thing which i i have a bunch on my shelf behind me and uh, i was like oh you know i was like you know i've i've never really like dug into like like 
deep on this. So I'm going to spend like some time truly, truly learning this, you know, and before that it was like a particular drum machine. And so it's kind of like, you know, coming in this room, getting the manual up on one screen, getting everything set up to sound good and be like, cool. I just want to really, really learn this piece of gear, learn how it's supposed to work. And then kind of just be like, well, Oh, now, and then how would my brain approach using something like this? Like what's something cool I could do with this? So for example, um, the SB404 sampler thing, um, I did a video on this uh, for this uh, store in Burbank called Perfect Circuit, and it's it's on YouTube, um, which I would recommend people go check out because it was a very fun video to do. It was basically me explaining like, yeah, I got really into the sampler and I wanted to learn how to use it, and here's what I did with it. And what happened was like on my YouTube feed at some point, um, a new a new Roland. SP sampler came out called the MK2, like the 404 MK2 or something. And it's it's just the new modern version and it's badass and it's amazing. And I had watched a video on this. So then my my feed got populated with other 404 videos. And the whole yeah. thing is like everyone that plays SP404s and composes and does stuff with them, it's lo-fi hip hop. That's the sound that like totally. you associate with the 404. And I was like, man, why is it anyone else doing like why are there no other videos or content of people like ripping different out stuff on a 404? And that, so I thought, I want to learn it. And like even just thinking about watching someone else like tap around and tweak on a 404, I was like, you could, you know, you could be doing this. Why don't you no try this? Try this. Oh, he's not doing it. He's not turning that knob, you know, or whatever. So I'm like, well, I want to do the homework and figure out how to use this piece of gear and see what I could do with it. So that was like my version of practicing, like coming in here and, you know, like learning how to use a piece of gear. But I would say it's more like that as opposed to, you know, grabbing a guitar and working on stuff or, you know, I mean, I really don't do that much of that sort of like work these days, I guess. And for a long time, like thinking on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel that. And that's why it's almost like now talking to you about it, I'm realizing that there's so much I wonder uh, about where, where your head is creatively with basically the sort of blending of synth and percussive sounds that you dot your guitar playing with. Not only that, that you combine it with through drum machine sampling and stuff like that. But what I'm realizing is that I don't even understand it well enough to ask you the right questions to get in there about it. You know, (laughs) Um, I think maybe there's also a chance that I'm kind of trying to dig in something that's way more natural because I don't know. There's like an energy to it that obviously everybody would say, well, yeah, I don't write stuff that I don't like, but a lot of your beats, rhythms and sounds, they have this like buoyancy and energy to them. And it's not dark sounding. It it actually, a lot of the times has sort of like a rejoiceful feeling as weird as that sounds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, where does that all come from? I mean, like i don't know right i mean like i feel yeah, I get it. A, a lot of um a lot of it is film film based like you know that watching Makes something sense. that gets filtered through my brain 
that I'm like super hyped up on that comes out in a very specific way. Um, I just watched this, uh, film, this Gaspar Noe film, um, a couple weeks ago called, I, I think the way you pronounce it is Lux Eterna. And it's just like, I don't, I don't even, I can't even recommend anyone watches it. Cause I don't know how you'd watch it. I had to torrent it. I, <laughs> I stole it and it, it was in, I, I believe it was in French. And then I had to find a subtitle thing and it was janky and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I was really like frustrated. Why it's a short film. Well, it's like 50 minutes. And I was really frustrated for the first like 30 minutes of like, I'm wasting time on this junky ass, stupid movie. Like, I don't even know. Like, what even is this? And then by like yeah. minute 35, I was like, Oh my God, this, like, I get this right now. And I like, you know, like full body rush, like goosebumps, you know, like, Oh my God, this is like hitting me in the right way. And then it stuck with me for a, you know, a week or so afterwards. And, you know, that energy that gets put into you through someone else's art, that's, I guess, it's the energy I received that you filter out through just the way that you view a drum machine or a guitar or the the way your fingers might create a guitar chord. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's, it's the energy you get from that sort of thing that makes it come out, I feel like, in sort of a unique, different way that you might be referencing. That's cool that you're drawing inspiration from something that kind of rides the line of being musical, but not necessarily music itself. I try to draw from a lot of stuff like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I've definitely said before, like, just things that like, well, things that bring you joy are obviously you can draw like energy and, you know, inspiration from sadness and just everything, even mundane things throughout the world the birds chirping and the trees outside can make you like spark something obviously. But yeah, you know, I think it's just like drawing inspiration from many different sources. You know what I mean? That like just sort of combine to make this weird thing that, you know, comes out in different ways. And, and that's only half of it. And then it's like synthesized through your experiences and music that I listen to. And like, you know, the source material for what makes you a person. And for me, it's like, you know, it's the timeline is like punk music, then, you know, post punk, whatever Fugazi was, and then techie stuff and then electronic music. And then just like hyper obsessing with records and bands and stuff over the years. And that all just like combining and also giving my, having given myself an outlet, Terramelos for so long where it's like that band we designed it to do whatever we want like so it was always an exercise in freedom being able to like take all these different ideas and like tweak them into something that works for the band whereas like if I'm at a, a you know a punk band or I don't know like a, a pop band or whatever it is you know you might not be able to take like these like I don't know, these really, really like foreign, bizarre influences and like filter it into like a quote unquote normal pop song or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you make the synopsis like you just did going from punk into all the different genres, ultimately getting into electronic and stuff, it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, And it's like a really I mean, it's a really cool path to come up in, you know? So where does like disheveled cuss fit into that? I'm curious. Is that another sort of subconscious appeasing 
of like another, I guess, a well or a fountain that comes up? Or is that more of a conscious thing? I think so. Disheveled cuss feels like to me where all like I'm putting a lot of creative energy into the last few years. And um, my like rap about it when I did the first record, I released it, I guess, during COVID. Was that? Can't remember if that was 2020. I think that was 2020, sometime in 2020. I think. I don't remember. It's like such a blur now, obviously, for everyone, I'm sure. Um, but I remember like my rap about it was like, this is not an art project. This is just me writing songs. Like, not none of the anything that I I have just spoken about in the last five minutes about like film or whatever, this or this. I feel like the disheveled cuss project was more me writing songs without having to concern myself with out stuff, creative ideas, stressing on 30 seconds of music for months and months, like totally. getting it right. It was just like, nope, this is just like sitting on the couch writing songs like, oh, what would go here? I guess another chorus and then a bridge and then an outro. There you go. Boom, done. No drama, no worries. And like a lot of that music was like in my head referencing the kind of music that I just grew up listening to as like a, let's say 12 through 15. So like even pre punk. So I, and the, on the timeline in terms of like what made me who I am. So even before that, it's, I was born in 1983. So like I'm prime for Nirvana and that era of MTV and listening to music. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. so, mm-hmm. so I feel like disheveled cuss was me being like having an outlet to write music like that, that didn't need to have freaky drums or freaky sounds or whatever. Like I didn't need to like worry about any of that stuff. Now, having said that, um, I am completing a second disheveled cuss record right now that to me actually does feel more like a quote unquote art project where the first time I was like, nah, whatever, just do it. This, this, and this, I'm not going to like spend too much time, like stressing on this stuff where I have been doing that with the second one. So I don't know how that will, um, translate to ears that are not attached to my own body, but, um, yeah, so it's conceptually slightly different. Um, and, and more towards like, you know, fully like filtering it through this music, through all of the inspirations, not necessarily like psychotic Zach Hill sounding drums or something, you know, but like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's a little more like creative, I guess, and less no, a no brainer. The first record was like no brainer pop rock songs, you know, and this one is like, yeah, this one has a little bit more like, I guess, thought put into it. And it's you're definitely starting to sort of develop and evolve the project because you've put so much you've put enough time long enough now yeah yes definitely i feel like oh i got one out of the way and then you know attempting to do another one everything is clearer to me now it makes sense i like I mean, dude, it's, you know, it's very weird to have like done a band for many, many years and be like, cool, let me try doing something else. And you're like, oh, (laughs) what do I do? Oh my God. You know, you forget about like, (laughs) you've had your whole musical world structured for so long and trying to like do that again is not necessarily easy. We're older, you know, like we don't have like the, 
the fuck it attitude when you're, you know, 20 or whatever yeah. to do it. So anyways, having gotten a record out of the way, I feel like the path is slightly clearer to me now in terms of what I can accomplish through doing another band, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it really also helps me reappreciate and reframe the power of a band. When we're kids, we just kind of play in bands because we see bands and we're, well, we want to play in bands and it's the thing to do. You do it long enough, your, your band gets somewhere, you're touring constantly, you have a record label, you're not in a position to appreciate it. You get old enough, you're separated enough. For me, finally, I was able to be like, wow, okay, so this is a group of people that are pretty damn good at what they do individually. And then they come together and are able to combine their talents and then get along or not get along long enough to like turn this entity into something, you know, it's, it's, like, it's pretty special. It's crazy to think about that, especially, you know, it's just so funny. I saw like a photo of a, a band the other day. I don't know what it was. They were young. Um, and maybe it was like, I don't know, off a record label or a new like hyped up you know, thing, a tastemaker thing. I don't know. But like, you know, looking at these like four people sitting on a bench or something, it's like a press photo. And I'm like, damn, that doesn't look like a band to me. That totally doesn't look like a band. And I was like trying to like figure out why I was kind of, I wasn't cranky about it, but I was just sort of like giggly to myself about it. I was like, that is not four people that have grinded in a practice spot for like a year and like, hated each other and gotten fights and then like made up, but there's still residual like drama that will just exist forever. (laughs) A band, you know what I mean? Like they haven't like, that's not four people that like hit Mel's diner on a Wednesday night at one in the morning after a long practice. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like I, and whatever, maybe this like gets into like slight, like old man yelling at the sky or whatever, but I'm like, well, that was, that was 2004 through like 2007. It was like, I spent three years like grinding, grinding, grind way more than three years. But you know what I mean? The early stages of like becoming yeah, like the core, the core, like developing this core, which was the band, you know? And now it's yeah. obviously like world, the world is different now. You can, you can make a quote unquote band with, you know, you could send out a text message to 10 people and get, you know, three of them to write you back and you could, by the end of the week, have recorded a record and potentially have it out on a record label. You know what I mean? And then take the photo of you guys sitting on the bench when it's like, Ooh, no, no, that's, that's not how I remember it going. Like, Ooh, you guys got it. It's a little different now than it was back then, you know? Totally. Totally. Um, I always, I guess with a lot of musicians our age, it's easy for us to end up, in this spot where we're kind of like pining over the past and waxing poetic about this time. Um, But for what it's worth, it really is special and it really is hard for people from our generation to kind of see that get dissolved with the accessibility of people and collaboration remotely. And although I appreciate this new paradigm as well because it creates a lot of awesome music and ideas it's a totally different style there is this sort of micro folk that is just vanishing uh, maybe it's not vanishing 
there's a micro folk in all these bands and these localized cultures that's now changing and doesn't exist the way we knew it. And uh, maybe that's not new. Maybe that's been happening for generations already, man. Maybe we're just filling the hole. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is really, it's just bizarre. The whole thing is just crazy. And I guess it's just especially weird to have ended up in a place where we're like, whoa, crazy. Like, when I used to walk to school, it was through seven miles of snow or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I, we never would have pictured that. Like we would be, I would be on the other end of that. You know. So, I first saw you in 2002, I believe. Honestly, I think I first saw Terra Mellis in 2002 or three as a four piece at the this bar in Albany, but I can't remember what it was called. Albany, New York. No, Albany Bay Area. Bay Area above Berkeley. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um so Was it the four, bowling alley? No, I don't think it was. Four piece would have been um two thousand four. So like it, Oh, that was the that, earliest? Two thousand four. Okay. I well, I think I'm not great with dates, but I believe it's two thousand four. Because what happened was like we got the band together and I seem to remember practicing for like almost a year before we played a show. So I want to say like, yeah, 2004, between 2004 and 2005 is like when we played shows for the first time. So it's, and and it would have been like getting to the Bay Area as fast as possible. So I would say maybe sometime around then. I remember Adam Davis took us to the show because down San Pablo, uh, our friend Aaron Nagel and then Steve Borth, who was a member of RX and our other friend Ron at the time had this house there. We had Mates Estate come play the basement for us one time, like at a party way back in the day. Like we went and picked them up in in the Link 80 van and like drove them over to the show to play. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So we went to go see you guys. Where I was going with this was, um, you probably already knew then that you were, you were all in with music. It was like your thing, right? Yes. Did you ever think that, or I'll, I'll start the question from this end, but it can go either way. Back then, did you think that you would be now where you are, making videos for Fender, being on TV, playing with Beach House, doing whatever? Or does that trip you out? And when you are doing all these things, sitting in, doing all these projects with all sorts of like extremely reputable artists and establishing yourself outside of your band and entity, do you trip out on where you ended up? Like how much of that is gratitude? How much of that is just like, you know what's going on yeah i think i think like the short answer is yes that is all like crazy to me was not planning on that i think like in the mid 2000s like freaky technical progressive music was like slamming that's when slamming it was crazy like it was a very imp- important like culture musical cultural shift in that world like of bands that could do that and do it well you know and so you know being kids we were like that's what we want to do like you know um Dillinger Escape Plan and Locust are like headlining the House of Blues and it's a big show and it's like popping off and it's crazy like I think it was just like oh dude like whatever the rock star dream is that like well we could do we could figure out how to like get to that point and like grind up to 
being a headlining band that can do this, right? And so I, I would say once we committed to like the music thing, it was all eggs in this basket, right? <laughs> yeah, and totally. unfortunately, that like kind of like world of music didn't last forever. You know what I mean? Like I would say, I mean, I'm curious what you think. I feel like from let's say let's say the early I mean that stuff really started in like 2001 2002 which is like uh, going back to my timeline like oh punk music and then like ooh what's this what's happening over here like these th- these dudes are on some other shit like I'm interested in that you know so let's say from like 2001 to like 2008 definitely by 2010 it was like not not the cool thing Done 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 yeah exactly like it it wasn't exploding like it was you know what i mean and i well because well i was just gonna say because all the people started to take the aesthetic off of it in the sheen and then you started losing hellas and thunderbolts and then you get these like more tech x jazz musicians that want to make this tech music and then it starts mixing with metal and then it just kind of loses the thing that got our people like you and me into it, which is a severe stylistic control that you don't allow it to just fall into whatever like rush tech prog land, you know? Yeah. It it will. If you don't have like a serious aesthetic twist on it, you know? Yes, exactly. And then because it was, that's right. Cause everyone was doing their own kind of version of it, you know, like our version. It's so funny. Anytime someone is like trying to like, kind of bust me on an influence or like ripping off something. I'm like, I'm so clear with what I was ripping off. I was ripping off Hella Fugazi and Dillinger escape plan period. Like I, like I never, (laughs) that's what I wanted. That's, that was what we were referencing fully. So like you can't bust me on anything else, but I will like, I'll take, you know, I'll take it for these ones. But um, yeah, so, you know, everyone was sort of like doing their own version of it and putting a twist on it. And then, you know, and, and maybe this is why I'm sort of historically cranky about quote unquote math rock because it's just like, well, then it just became like, instead of breaking out of a box and everyone doing their own version, like the wall started coming up and all of a sudden you were like, you were a math rock band and you're like, wait, the whole point of us doing this was to like not be able to be easily labeled. And it was such a, it's a lazy thing. You know, there's so many things that fall under that category. So then, you know, I guess maybe like removing the sheen from it also like, you know, correlates to this new, not a new genre, but a more common, it, it got, it got more, far more common by 2010 and it was less special. You know what I mean? It it was, that's the thing. Maybe that's a good word. It was a very special thing to encounter a band where you're like, whoa, they're on some shit right now. Like this is not like your everyday, like punk show that I would normally be at. They're doing something different. And then you get, there's like a hype up, you know, you get this like feeling and you got like, Ooh, this is like a special thing. And all of a sudden seeing bands, seeing bands like that became way less special because they were so common and everyone was like aping you know the like was going to the same source material so then all of a sudden it was like well this isn't as exciting as it was you know a few years ago pretty much totally and uh i don't know this might sound like too hefty of a claim to a lot of people but i'm gonna say it anyway because i personally feel pretty convicted about it which is 
that um, subgenre of kind of thrashy math tech stuff, to me, it was one of the most like significant things since like bebop to happen to something that was pre-existing. You know, which is again on a new set of instruments now. People are playing stuff with a level of technicality and a speed and a freneticness and an energy that had not been done in that way before. You know, this is we're not. It had been done in many more like basic senses of like maybe some odd time signatures here and there, but you know, you can't even put Dream Theater and Rush uh, the pre-existing. I guess those are just some big names. There's a lot of other ones, right? But we're just, so to keep the the conversation moving, I'll just use those big ones. You can't put them in the same category as even just like calculating infinity as a record or, you know what I mean? Like any of that stuff. And that's totally right. Like, you know, new, like new, never before, Music that had never been done before was being created. Never been done. Never been done. Nothing like so, it. So to see those bands and to like experience them was the craziest thing, you know? And like, so yeah, that that's like what to me, 2001 to like 2005 was that. That special like insanity that was happening in that world. That's why we were like, let's commit to this. Let's do this. This is like, this is the craziest thing we've ever seen. If we practice enough and we like get good enough, we could do something like that, you know? Totally. And it's not apparent probably at the forefront, but that music was a huge part of what we tried to do in RX, except we pulled it even further out of its original home and mixed it with our thing of bad brains and the police and soul and punk, obviously. But, you know, we first heard what would become Hold Your Horses as a demo of a burn CDR from friends in Sa- in, from Sacramento, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and on this one CD was the Advantage's first recording and then the demo recording that would become Hold Your Horses. And we were in the van, like, listening to it for the first time. I distinctly remember everything about it because it completely changed my perception of music. And it was not easy to do that at that time for me as a 21 or 22-year-old. <laughs> right. I was between 21 and 23 when I heard it. But I was just like, it was just so huge. because And that was hard to do just because of my whole classical background. And then me being a shitty little young idiot who thought I knew all everything about music just because I had known so much indie and indie music and stuff. So yeah, that stuff was like super important. Yeah. And that's, that's why that was such a big deal because it was, it was a, like a literal new thing that you would, you, that just did not exist before that, you know? And so then you, you fast forward and that gets like carbon copied enough times to where it loses, you know, the magical feeling that it has, obviously with anything, that's what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, that like golden era of, let's say experimental music that is a band, you know, a three or a four piece or whatever band like making these sounds out of a drum set and their guitar amps was just like the craziest thing, you know? So to go back to this, <laughs> um, yes, that was really exciting for four dudes that came 
well, most of us came from like punk and hardcore, you know, and it's like, well, let's try this thing. And again, all we're, let's all go all in on this and, you know, dedicate everything to it and see what happens. And so I would not have anticipated where I am at now. Honestly, I would have thought like, fuck, our band will be a big band. We're going to be a big band. Like we'll get to that point and this will be like how we, if we, if we build it, they will come and we will eventually like make a living off this. And I don't, I mean, I guess maybe in some ways we kind of did eventually get there, but not, it didn't happen the way that we wanted it to happen. In other words, you know, it was a very, very like, um, slow burn, you know, and it's even Same. to this day is like very slow burn, but, um, obviously, <laughs> you know, like then all these other little things did kind of start filtering in, which got me to whatever is happening now as a 38 year old which is like blows my mind constantly fully unexpected i mean like like you said you know like whatever uh even like even having an associate an association with a guitar company like fender to me that still is one of the craziest things like having done whatever videos or even like receiving having received a guitar from fender is truly the craziest thing because i think back to being 11 years old and you know like wanting to play guitar you know like and perspective on it so all of that shit that is like being on tv with best coast or whatever like all the like crazy little funny auxiliary things i've had occur throughout my musical career are insane to me never ever would have anticipated that i thought i was just going to be the fucking <laughs> noise rocker proggy noise rocker on stage playing you know to to big rooms that's what i wanted you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's rad man um it's rad to see how everything blooms it is yeah you know? yeah it, it is it's quite a mystery especially like it like there's much easier musical paths that you can take. You know what I mean? And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think about it a lot. And I, like even using that phrase like, oh, put all the eggs in this basket. Like, honestly, I wish I had not put all the eggs in that basket. And like, you know, I wish I would have had a little bit um, clearer, like, you know, outlook on what I should or shouldn't be doing. You know, not that I feel like I made any wrong moves because every move that I made literally led up to this point, you know, had I done anything differently, who knows what the domino effect would have been. But I do wish like there, I had made some pivots here or there that like, you know, could have afforded me a little bit more, you know, financial stability at this point or whatever you want to call it or, you know, but I, I don't, I'm trying to be very grateful and like aware of the opportunities that I've gotten through this path, you know? Yeah. I, in most cases, I kind of feel like there's that benefit to these sort of crazy lives and crazy and risky lives that we lead, you know? Um, there's something about it stoking creativity just plainly, I think personally uh i don't think one needs to be constantly on the edge of despair battling the biggest sort of uh mainstream demons there are whether it be through addiction or just straight up just you know i think that just like we were saying you can draw musical inspiration from things that may be musical and not music you can also 
draw creative power from sort of uh, uncomfort that's not this sort of like cliche tragedy. Totally. Totally. You know, (laughs) but there is, you've seen the meme where it's like, it's like a, like a drawing of like a guy and his body is like all puzzle pieces. Do you know this meme I'm talking about? And it's like, and then he's holding like, and he's missing a piece in the back of his head and he's holding, you know, the missing piece or whatever. And it's all some, sometimes you only need one thing to complete whatever's missing. And like the missing thing is like a million dollars. And I'm like, well, yeah, (laughs) like I, like it would be sick to have like a million, like living the life I live right now. Like, damn, what could I, you know what I could do if I had a million dollars and was just like sorted or, you know, let's the real life musical analogy might be like, you know what I would do if I could land a, like a spot in a Mercedes commercial with one of my songs or something like AKA, you know, coming up on a lot of money that could sort you, you know what I mean? Like just the comfort yeah. and stability of financial, you know, stuff make would make life for all of us on these weird paths much, much easier, you know? Yeah, but that's like the one circumstance for myself where I'm not curious to know what my creativity is like under those circumstances. I'm not curious to know what my music's going to sound like if I was a billionaire. You totally, know I mean? totally. Like, I'm almost, I'm almost certain it would suck. Well, and you know, I do want that missing piece. <laughs> I do want the BMW commercial, or you know, the Super for Bowl sure. ad or whatever. But like sure. at the same time, you know. A while back, I was saying like I've structured my life to be really ideal for me. I like I have a really cool. Obviously, it could always be better. There's always things you know. Everyone's got their own dramas, but I'm like, eh, I, like I'm good. And I've I have realized that like this, you know, it's it's all about the journey. You know, not necessarily the destination. You know, like we all have path. You know, there is a destination at the end of this path that you're always looking towards. But um, yeah, like my journey is cool, and I'm happy with like the equipment I have and what I've built to like, you know, travel along the journey. It's pretty solid, you know, and I, so I feel good about that. I just the million dollars would be sick, is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel you. That's to say, I'm not saying that I wouldn't be down either. <laughs> Let me ask you this: so, Would you would you license music to a McDonald's commercial? Yes, yes, I would. Even though I don't really agree with anything that McDonald's stands for. Um, and what it does to the earth. I also understand that it's more complex than that. Uh, This is not a justification for money. This is not me kind of like not having an answer, honestly, because at the same time as as much damage as it does on a day-to-day basis for people who don't have a lot of money, who are busy, who don't have a lot of things that bring them joy, if it's literally like a fucking Big Mac or a Sunday or whatever. And the reality is, is that McDonald's is this huge because it does do that for a lot of people. I mean, it may not be healthy. So you know? that is like such a like thinker's answer, which is fucking sick because you're like that. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're like, okay, yes, that like it is an evil company that is like done a lot of damage to the planet. But that in yeah. itself is such a good like like thought point on it. It's like, yeah, but 
myself, I love McDonald's. Like I fucks with McDonald's and I would license music to it in a second, knowing that it's evil and all the same things you just said. But like uh-huh. the happiness that I get of being like, fuck, it's 1 a.m. I'm like hungry and I just want a hamburger right now. I'm going to go hit the drive through. Like, you know, like you're right. Like it's, it's just, it's about context and like, you know, weighing out damage versus, you know, I guess joy that something brings or, and then also, also let's say the money that you could earn from doing something like that, the good that you could be putting out into the earth that you know what i mean for from the money that you earned i don't know maybe that would buy you this or this or get you studio time or afford you a week of working with this person or whatever you get the point i'm making it's like i just like your answer to that that it's it's not just the cut a yes or no it's gray it's like a very gray thing you know because you you think on something like that i don't really know but the way for me when it comes to food it's different. If it was Walmart that's retail, that gives people shit they don't need, they can get everywhere else, I honestly wouldn't. I wouldn't feel good about that because, you know, but the reality is, is to me when it comes to food, even no matter what the judgment is, the people's connection is the bigger story to me. The bigger story is whether it's you who went with their parents or whatever that childhood taste, because for most of us, it's like, once we know good food, like we know things, Taco Bell, McDonald's, we know it tastes good, but we also know that it's not good, good. Absolutely. There's a big difference, you know, and anybody who doesn't understand that you eat in levels, like you listen to music in levels, like you do everything in levels, like this is not a binary life, especially with thinking and being human. Right. Like to me, that's the bigger story. And even if it compromises like my like political views as to somebody who's a little bit more disciplined and extreme with what they're willing to do, fair enough. That's just not me. Where my heart and mind goes is to the bigger story for me, which is like, yo, it, I hate it, what it does. I think their hash browns are pretty good, even though they're gross in the morning. Like, I'm not going to lie, you know, Um, but like, what do you say to somebody who's like, even me, man, I loved Happy Meals when I was a kid. Why? I would get them after piano lessons or on the way. My mom would always, you know, like make sure that I would always get. And then as I got older, it would be like two cheeseburger meal. You know what I mean? And like, there's a lot of memories there for me. And even now. If I'm being honest, yes, there are moments where I'm still just like, yeah, that would be, I would smash the shit out of a two cheeseburger meal and some fries right now. I bet it would taste amazing, even though I'd feel like crap afterwards. Yeah. So yeah, that's my deal. You know, in 2004, well, I guess between like 2001 when I graduated high school and 2004 when we started the band, I was in junior college. Um and Nathan, the Terramelis bass player, and I, Nate and I, we were both at this college together. Actually, I guess all four of us, the original band members, were kind of at this junior college at the same time. And awesome. I took, before I was all in on music, that's why I was like in junior college, like, oh, you know, it's just basically extended high school, and you just, while you're figuring out what you want <laughs> to totally. do. And I... <laughs> I through while figuring out what I was going to do, I was like, Oh, philosophy sounds like kind of fun. So I, 
and I, I took a long time. To, I think junior college, you're supposed to do two years. You're supposed to have it wrapped up in two years. I was definitely <laughs> yeah. there for like three and a half because I was just fucking <laughs> off and whatever. But I took quite a few. What what interested me was in, like intro to philosophy classes, you know, philosophy of science, philosophy of religion, whatever. I, I took maybe three or four. And I remember that that was such a big deal for me to like expand my thinking on stuff, which probably got really, really annoying to be around, you know? And like, there were like <laughs> classic Terramelos, like early, like van conversations, which were like so fucking obnoxious because the thing that you learn to do in like those as being like a young sponge taking an intro to philosophy classes, it's just thought process. And it's like expanding the way that you can have perspective on something, whether you agree with it or not. And I just, that was such a big deal for me. And so this is also the reason I bring this up is because like during those classes is when Terramelos is being like created in our heads, my, my head. And then, you know, Nate and I hanging out after or something or talking in between classes, but it's like, it's, it's during that era that we're like, we should do a band. We should do a band, which definitely like subconsciously somehow influences the music. Obviously, like, let's just say, even if it's just like, thinking man's music or whatever it's a there's a little bit more like thought that goes into like creating it which Mm -hmm. you know like correlates to like just thinking about religion or whatever it was you know and so anyways totally just you know your outlook even just by putting you on the spot being like yo would you take mcdonald's money you like you have the brain to like go beyond no fuck no dude i couldn't do that you know but you're like well here's the thing about it there's this there's this there's this and i just i'm very interested in like that level of contemplating ideas and going in on something you know and i think like as a person and again probably as a musician that has influenced going back to like maybe why how why did how did i get to a point like how what how would i explain to someone that like music comes out of me the way it does i really feel like it has to do something with like my brain getting tweaked in that way you know at that point in my life yeah i totally appreciate what you're saying because i in turn am into the same thing but i'm also into someone like you who's so authentic the way I look at it is like, look, man, you're a musician in LA during this time. You're probably around a lot of vegans. You're probably around a lot of people that are elitist about stuff. And you know what? You like what you like. Even shit like McDonald's that a lot of people will give you shit for. It's like, you're into it. You like what you like. When people like those kind of things, those kind of qualities, like I'm just endlessly fascinated and I find it endlessly like, I, I just love it. You know, I just love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's a big deal when you can get to a point where you're comfortable with your convictions about things like that. Because yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, you know, you live in a world where it's like judging, judging, but like even the people that like are like claim to like be open minded and not judge, like, no, you're judging. You're absolutely judging. you know what I mean? So <laughs> Yeah, totally. Which it's like and I do too, and you everyone does. It's like a you know, totally. it's like an instinct that we can't avoid. But when you can get to a point where you're like, for reals, I don't give a fuck. That is like true freedom. 
and it, it is it takes a long time to get there and to even acknowledge in your like own self that you are there because I maybe for years and years on my twenties like I don't give a fuck what anyone says about me. It's like no, I did. You know what I mean or whatever. Totally. totally. And there's there's like a a part of growing up that you definitely hit where you're like ah. Oh, this is like true Zen, true freedom where I like, I don't care. I'm like my own thing. And to some extent you will always, you can't ever like totally shed that. I feel like, but you can get better and better, better and better of like acknowledging it and knowing, you know, when to pull back or, you know, whatever. So, yeah. Well on, on the, uh, if we're, well, we're both climbing the mountain of not giving a fuck, but now I'm looking up at your position ahead of me and going, "Hey man, respect cuz you're you're above me now. You're further up the mountain of not giving a fuck than I am." <laughs> I mean, I I definitely give a fuck. You know, like I have to shout out my friend um Bob Bruno who is uh he plays guitar and he's half of Best Coast who we had mentioned that I'd played I've played some with and um I I actually like live on the same street as him. I moved into my house like 4 years ago. And turned out we had this kind of like unlikely friendship. Uh, we had a few mutual friends and like we meet each other and we kind of find out that we're both like really into Disneyland and hamburgers and all this stuff. And I I specifically remember, and if like, I don't know if Bob's going to listen to this, but he'll think this is funny. I think I remember Bob like asking me like, oh, well, what's like your favorite burger? And I, the thing that popped into my head is I really wanted to say dude, I really just love a McDonald's cheeseburger. Like that's probably just my fate. That's one of the favorite tastes that goes in my mouth. Not forget what, like what, if it's good for you or how you feel later, but like hamburger, like, or a cheeseburger, you can't really fuck with the McDonald's ha- cheeseburger, but I didn't say that. And then like, I think I, I realized like later on down, like our friendship, like, Oh, Bob fucking loves McDonald's cheeseburgers. And then like, I was like, dude, this is a real one. Like an absolute, like one of the realest like people I've ever met in my life. And I've definitely like, he was a big reason I feel like just over the last four years that I felt more and more comfortable being in a city like this about and not giving a fuck and just like owning it. It's basically owning it. You know what I mean? And this dude and, and like, and that's through our friendship. That's how I got to play with Best Coast and do do stuff with them. But like, yeah, I mean, having someone like basically surrounding yourself with those types of people is very good for like mental health, I feel like. Oh, yeah. They're the best people to be around, period. Yeah. It's just like the best sort of example by action that is, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 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 And, so, um, yeah, that it helps. It's a, that's, it's a big deal. Like. Like you said, it's it's weird when you're in like metropolitan cities that have, you know, those sorts of vibes that can can be like discouraging, you know. But like, yeah, once you hit that yeah. like true, I do not give a fuck like astral plane, it's feel it's like freedom, you know. And obviously, I've done that with me. Like that's I my whole life feels like that. Not just about like you know, oh, I would take the McDonald's money, but like my music, my art, like my physical appearance i mean i i give a fuck about my physical appearance but i don't give a fuck what someone else thinks about my physical appearance you know what i mean so it's all those things well said well said yeah that's how i i care a lot but i don't necessarily care what other people think at all yeah exactly i remember like always struggling with that where it's like well i care what i look like and if i looking in the mirror i'm like damn fool like 
you're looking like shit today or something like that's not caring i i care what i think of myself you know and yeah. that may sound obvious but it's like it's not it might not be so obvious like you that's a thing to think on you know what i mean like and really like examine like do totally. i actually care what someone else thinks about me no but i do want to care what i think of me i'm thinking about that you know yeah exactly Oh, you know what I was going to say? I think one of the special things about a McDonald's cheeseburger is that it's one of the, personally, my favorite combo on a burger is ketchup mustard. And it's actually not that common in American burgers. A lot of people, they like this Thousand Island fancy sauce root or mayonnaise only root, especially from like LA burger slash Mexican food places with wonderful grilled burger taste. But, you know, but anyway, uh, if I remember correctly, although it's been years since I've had one, aren't McDonald's cheeseburgers, ketchup, mustard burgers? Yes. I believe there's like a little dollop of both on there. Yeah. Yeah. Because ketchup is always pickle side. I remember this. And mustard is always bottom side, I believe, because pickles are always top side with the cheese. No. And the diced onions. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, and the diced onions, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, I have a, I have big nostalgia for McDonald's, you know. So, like, it's real for me. <laughs> if I was gonna eat a fast food burger, it would probably for me it was the Whopper when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like that was Burger King was my thing. It was like the onion rings and the Whopper piano lessons. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All yeah. tied together. That's sick. Yeah. I think I think for me it is like the just the absolute classic is like the McDonald's cheeseburger for sure. But I like have much respect for like all other cheeseburgers and I have other spots I like. I didn't mean to like focus so much of this interview <laughs> on McDonald's, but I was just curious no, if you cool. if you'd take the cash. <laughs> yes. But to answer your question, yes. Also because when I thrive and I'm comfortable, there's also other ways for me to propagate and spread my values and influences than denying opportunities to myself out of principle that no one will ever see. I wouldn't. That's how I feel. I wouldn't call that the correct answer, but that is the answer that I would give. That is that that is the perfect like answer to that question. It's it's a complicated thing, and you have to. Clearly, you have to have thought on something at that level before, and I it's a I much respect for that. <laughs> respect for yeah, and I'm not surprised you feel the same way because really that is honestly the real answer. And uh, just for myself though, like I said, if it was something clear cut, like if Halliburton wanted to like license a song, even for huge money, I'd just be like, <laughs> dude, just by principle, I really don't think I can. Sorry, yeah, like Bechtel was like, we want your song, you know, or J.P. Morgan is just like, dude, I Walmart, like, ah, sorry, or just like straight up like a gun company, like guns, yeah. guns yeah. are us. We want to use your song. <laughs> then I'd be like, I might be like. Damn, this is kind of fucked up. Guns R Us is trying to use my shit. <laughs> like, here's a tough one. Here's a really tough one for you. Amazon, would you do it? If um, the money wasn't great, but it was like enough of a paycheck where you were like, I need to think about this. You know, uh, I hear, I, I totally, totally hear all the arguments for Amazon being evil, evil, evil. Okay. Um, I use Amazon like I like clear, especially during this era where it's like, you're not trying to go out as much and you know, whatever. Um, 
So I just, if, if it's just the same money or whatever, like, yes, I think I would do that. Um, but like, okay, so what, if, if you want to zoom out on this, there's like a meme going around right now about like Coachella and I don't, have you seen this? It was like, literally, I just saw this today. Um, you know, cause the, the Coachella announcement got lined up. And so now there's, right. a, there's a new meme from something of like about all of the, um, I guess, uh, people that are responsible for booking Coachella, you know, and it's like a pie chart kind of thing. And it shows you like, Oh, William Morris, Morris agency is this percentage, this percentage, whatever. And like, uh-huh. I, I mean, I did not click through an article to read this and it wasn't an article. It was just a, a graphic, I guess, but like a, you know, 26% or something of Coachella is being from this dude. I can't remember his name. Um, but a guy that has an agency, and this guy was a known associate with like Jeffrey Epstein and had ridden on the plane with him and Ghislaine Maxwell and like basically, you know, a potentially very, very evil person. Right. Uh-huh, and, and the uh-huh. point of this meme going around is like boycott or whatever, or like calling out artists playing or something. And anytime I see something like that or like Amazon hate or whatever, I zoom out and I go, this world, I hate to be a downer, is fucked up. There is evil shit that is happening. Like, even today when I saw that, I'm like, yeah, that's true. Do you pay taxes? If you pay taxes, like, you are, you're a part of this. And in other words, we have to pay taxes, right? You can't get away from that. But like, I guess the point being on a like broader way of thinking about this is like, man, you like, this is like, it's really hard. It's not black. Life is not black and white, you know, when you keep zooming out and like fucking, yeah. Like if my tax dollars have gone to air raids in fucking like whatever country and like, you know, to the defense budget or whatever it is, I'm like, dude, like that's fucked up. And like, yeah, I order from Amazon and I know Amazon is like not a good company and like doesn't necessarily treat their workers right or whatever. But then I'm like, but wait a second, keep, keep going back. Like think about everything. Like the world is not good. And like, we're basically just doing our best, you know, to survive. And then you like, make choices, you know, and decisions. Should I do this or this? You know, the lesser of two evils in many cases, like it can get boiled down to. Um, so yeah, so I, I think about it, like I find myself thinking along those lines quite a bit. So Amazon evil, evil company, but like maybe, um, the, the benefits of earning money from something like that would outweigh, the guilt that I would feel because I'm not, I'm taking, I guess you could think about it this way. Like you'd be taking money from that company and doing something like, I guess you could do something good with it or create a good energy to give back to the world that would hopefully in thinking about it, like um, have a bigger effect than having not done that that's sort of an important like way of looking at something like that, you know? Yeah. I, I feel that completely. Yeah. Another thing I think about kind of is like, we all know that 
these practices of these companies and the profits they're taking in are beyond evil. It's literally like real life evil villain shit. But at the same time, I'm like, these are problems that go beyond the proprietors of these corporations, man. Like, uh, if you just snapped your fingers, if I had the power of a genie and snapped my fingers and took Amazon and Walmart away, you know how many jobs that's taking away from people that are only really employed because they fit a particular profile that is exploitable to these evil fucks. Just because that goes away doesn't mean they get redispersed into jobs that pay them better or meaningful work. So it's like this, it's almost like this like terrible teeter-totter. It's like when the person gets impaled on like the the rod and they're still alive and you like you can't just pull them off right away they're alive like on it you know <laughs> that's right but like you just pull them off like they're gonna die shit's gonna go crazy you have to like come up with this plan you gotta like figure out you know what i mean yeah maybe that's kind of a crappy analogy but that's like how i view it you know that i mean that's i think the point is it's just there's nuance to all of this you know and there yeah. if like again you gotta pull back and you know, think about this and like everything is subjective and there's always, you know, a different angle. And like thinking back to those philosophy classes, the the very first thing that like really tweaked me just to go back to it for a sec would be like, I don't even remember. It was, I don't know, we were, we were going through this book and it was like, um, like, you know, like we were, we were doing lessons on morality and subjective morality and cultural relativity and all this stuff. And basically the way that this um, professor had structured the course would be like, we would focus on this one concept and, you know, be like, damn, I never thought of it that way. Absolutely. Yes. I like this. And then at the end of like the second half of it would be like, okay, here's why this is all fucked up. And why it's not right and why it leads to this idea. And I'd be like, oh my God, whoa, that just like freaked me out because I was so on board with this 10 minutes ago, but there's this whole new perspective about this that I hadn't even considered. And now I'm onto this. And then the way this was structured is like, you know, just constantly evolving your thought process, you know, and like obviously in. 2022 there is not a lot of evolved thought process happening like on any like obviously any piece of like the political spectrum there's not enough you know like societal like cultural like people are not thinking outside the box like they should be if we're if we're trying to progress as a human species it ain't happening you know yeah, I think everybody having a giant billboard in their face gives them endless stuff to copy and mimic and mime or yeah. And so yeah, the the thinking for itself, thinking for oneself goes right out the window. Yeah. Cuz then it's easier to just like have the appearance of having an intelligent stance and joining a team. We we know this obviously, you know. Yeah, so, you you can't yeah. escape that. We're just like we're just yeah, stating the obvious, but like I don't know. Somehow this this all just relates back to thought process and wh- what you do with, you know, these ideas and really like just yeah, processing information, you know what I mean? And like yeah. that you can do that from you know, how you think about what you're seeing on your, you know, your feed on your phone, on your TV, you know, like or when you're creating something. It's all filtering it through, you know, a very like broadened 
you know, brain space kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, man. I feel you. I didn't know that your early time in sort of that sort of structured setting of philosophy classes had such an impact that you would remember it now as to like totally changing the trajectory of your thinking and yeah. the view of the world. Yeah. There, you ever heard of the, um, a pen, you know who Penn and Teller are? Of course. Okay. Do you remember their show in the 2000s called Bullshit? No, I don't. Okay, so I heard about this show real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it it coincides because I I think I saw my first episode of the show in one of those philosophy classes. Uh, Penn and Teller, famous magicians. They're rad. They're libertarians. They had a TV show throughout the 2000s called Bullshit where they examined like pop culture myths and ideas and they just like like thrashed them and explained why they're quote-unquote bullshit so there was like episodes on christianity and um bottled water and recycling (laughs) and just all all these different things you know feng shui like uh chiropractors Uh just everything um you know that's like sketchy things throughout the world you know that like we're we're taught to believe are like legitimate you know um and anyways that was that was also played a very big deal that as it relates to like opening up your mind and thinking about stuff because i was like and it's it's a comedy show and they're funny and it's probably a little dated now with you know some of the jokes they make and some of the information actually their their whole spiel on their show bullshit was at you know the end of after 10 years of having completed the show they wanted to do a bullshit episode on the show bullshit which going back to philosophical like out thinking being able to like correct your thoughts and be like wait i was wrong about this like this is huge this was my thought process and i did an entire fucking tv show on this like trashing this idea and then once i zoomed out and more information was available to me i realized i was wrong about that you know so it's a really really good show again it's probably dated but it's on showtime highly recommended if if anyone out there is like interested in you know these sorts of like kind of wacky they're well they're not wacky but these slightly different ways of thinking that's a really really good like intro to like you know that sort of thing yeah uh, similarly that show adam ruins everything i think is really great totally that, that was like a modern a modern version of exactly that okay that yeah that yep. makes sense yeah that writing and the research and the perspective is like the perfect tone for someone like me because it's like it's not telling you what to think it's telling you information you didn't know to help you think it's huge fully know? exactly yeah so you well, you should check that show out bullshit like yeah it's it's oh, yeah. really good actually you know what? Like i just shit. i just rewatched one yesterday on numbers just because I was like, you know, COVID and we're always, we're so bombed with numbers and percentages and there's a really, really good bullshit episode on, on numbers and number manipulation through surveys and data that we receive and how, you know, it's just numbers don't lie, but you can manipulate how they're presented very, very easily. And this happens to us every day every time you look at your phone whatever you're like you're being manipulated in some way or another whether you realize it or not you know bro 
a perfect example is things being something 99 straight up. Like <laughs> there's no reason to create an amount of things going off the shelves that require you to have like 99 cents add tax and then have these fucked up, you know, denominations of change. It's, it's dumb. Totally. It's all because of the psychology of marketing and selling you stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah, you know. that's right. Exactly. So yes, Penn and Teller's bullshit. That's my plug. Watch it. <laughs> oh yeah. I love it. It's, I didn't know about it. And especially if it's like in the same vein and a predecessor to Adam ruins everything. Like that's my shit. Yeah. I love that. Stuff. You'll like it. You, well, you have like 10 seasons of just like ruining shit that you may have like been down for. <laughs> Man, that show ran that long. I think so. Yeah. May, like maybe like between eight and 10 seasons. Yeah. It was on for a long time. Nice. I, you're also to me in my mind, like such a great wealth of like particular niche shit. And because of that same thing of like no fucks given, but it goes deeper and further back than that. Like, like I know you'll always have like good recommendations of stuff, you know? Yeah. That's, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I'm good for a recommend here or there. (laughs) So real kind of like hard Tron turn in subject change, but still based upon what I said to you uh, just now, what is one of your uh, current favorite non-vinegar based hot sauces? Um, yeah, we were, we had a little funny thing on this about this on Twitter. Oh, I, I know. Um, you ever been to Nando's? Oh, bro, Nando's peri peri sauces are oh. So yeah, so I had. Uh, when did we first go to a Nando's? There, this is a chicken restaurant in the UK, um, and I guess sometime in the last one of the last, not the last time I was in UK that Terramelis would have been there, but maybe the time before that. I don't know, 2016 or something. Like our friends. Uh, in this really cool band called Tangled Hair, took us to Nando's. And I was like, oh my fucking God, what is this? And it was the first time I'd ever had peri-peri sauce. Uh, Awesome. And and it freaked me out in the best way. I couldn't believe it. Um, So then like I came home and, you know... there, there is a Nando's in Chicago, and there's some in Washington D.C. Like you can find them, and I've been yeah, to them. I heard uh, there's one in Boston now too. Oh, sick! That's awesome, dude. We need one on the West Coast. Like, if we had a Nando's in Southern California, forget it, dude. It would be massive. I don't understand it. I um, don't understand why there isn't one. And just so you guys know, whoever's listening, it's it's a it originates in the U.K., but it's supposed to be like a Portuguese style chicken restaurant, like grilled chicken. Uh, French fries and different sides is the basic format of this place. And is Perry Perry, is that like a, is it African spices or something? I believe, don't quote me on this because my, I didn't actually brush up, but from what I know, it is a fermented Portuguese hot sauce that came from Portuguese occupation of Africa. Got it. Got it. And so they, so through that occupation and colonialism, they got it. And, you know, this is different because peri-peri is fermented chilies. So it's the closest thing on the opposite side of the world uh, to kimchi flavor, which is why I love it so much. You know, ah. it's, it's, it's pretty close. It's like, it's not quite to kimchi, 
but it's way further in kimchi land in that direction than a lot of other hot sauces. Got it. Got it. Um, so na- specifically Nando's Peri Peri, because I've tried, and, and you can find the bottles here sometimes at like yeah. Avon's or whatever, a Safeway or something. Totally. Sometimes they have them. They won't have many and they won't have many of the flavors, but my literally my favorite Nando's Peri Peri is the garlic one, the purple label. Oh, that one's so good. Dude, it's good. And like when I do find them at a, a grocery store, like I'll buy a few and then just like try and chill on it, you know, and like not go through them because they're kind of hard to find. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I do ration it. I won't go as hard as I would want to, like if I was in UK, you know, having it. Um, um, but yeah, but, but there are different that's why I'm being specific. It's not I, I do like peri peri spices. They're amazing, but you can find different like brands that are now doing peri peri, but it they don't hit it like Nando's hits it. Yeah. Um the only other one that I've tried and now I really like is one of my favorites is the Trader Joe's Peri Peri that they made. You know, I got that really excited to try it and it was not right for me (laughs) in fact i think i actually have a bottle of that in the fridge right now i have i have probably four different kinds of peri peri because i'll just buy it if it says peri peri i'm gonna buy it doesn't matter what it is because i i want to find something else (laughs) that hits it because nando's is so hard to find um but yeah, so but I, I just like it in general. It's it's a it's a different taste, like you said. It's different. It's on it's on some other shit, you know. Yeah. Um. The was the Trader Joe's one not hot enough for you? Was there not enough spice, or was it a little bit too fermented and sour, funky tasting? Maybe too fermented. I can't remember. Um. I understand. I was like so passionate about specifically the Nando's one that anything that's yeah. not close enough, I'm like, ah, nah, can't do it. You know? So there was no, also, fair. there's also some other one that I found at like a Vons that comes in like a squeeze bottle. I can't remember the name of it, but I've seen a few different people be like this new hot sauce. They, they do like a ghost pepper one and a few different things. And I, I so I got it excited, but it's the same thing. It, like it wasn't fully there for me, you know? Do you like habanero taste? Do you like habanero hot sauces? Yes. I think, um, is the brand Yellow Bird? Am I yeah, thinking? they make they make some habanero ones. Yeah. I those think, are the ones that come in those like little paint squeeze bottle yes, thingies, right? Yes. Yeah. I have, yeah. I have, habanero would be a green hot sauce, right? Or is it red? Uh, habanero... Habanero is like that yellowy orange. The color. yellowy orange. Okay. Then Yeah. I do like those. Those are spicy. That's like a level that like hits me hard where I'm like sweating off it, you know? Which I like that. Me too. Me um, too. But like Nando's, even like the triple X hottest one you can get, it's like a it's a level that I'm comfortable with, you know, not on that like habanero tip where it's like, ooh, cool. Like sl- gets slightly uncomfortable, you know. Yeah, so you're definitely in it for the flavor. Because there are some people that are in it just for the sensation, too, you know? I, I do do or, that, and then too. everywhere in between. I, I okay. do everything. Like, like you know, like Nashville-style hot chicken. I, like, I'll go the hottest you can get just for the, like, you know, sensation of it. I have done that, for sure. Oh, okay. So you you can get down like that. 
for sure for fun because it's funny and it's interesting yeah. like what the human body it's just heat it's what what is the word capsin uh, capsaicin capsaicin it's just you know it's not gonna kill you well i maybe it would kill someone but like it ain't gonna kill me it's just gonna make me feel really fucked up for a second and then i'm gonna come down off of it and it's interesting just like putting your body through that i guess <laughs> yeah yeah but and, and then oftentimes if it's hot enough you put your body through it again like hours later so, or the yeah. next day which is like and it's or funny so, so when i have obviously like gone gone in you have to sort of like plan out like what your what your next 24 hours yeah. are gonna look like yeah you need to have some certain faculties in place <laughs> that's right yes yeah man um it's been super sweet talking to you man it's been you know already like well over hour and a half it's gone by so fast yeah so, yeah we, uh, we we touch on a lot of important things i feel like yeah and as usual with awesome dudes such as yourself i could go on much 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 longer but for the sake of uh doing an episode uh i will just say thanks again man for taking the time yeah on thank- a personal level this has been super fun yeah yeah you, no i i totally appreciate the invite dude like it was i i as i should have actually even bugged you what if i would if i would have hit you up like let's say six months ago could i have just been like yo dude can i do let me do your podcast i was hoping that you might because i always wanted to ask you but i was always like i don't know if this is nick's thing like like I know he's like a deep thinker and he's really smart and like every time we've hung out I love talking to him but I just don't know if podcasting is his thing like so I was like kind of afraid to ask for a while yeah because I, I, I it had occurred to me like a long time ago like I should hit Steve I'd be like yo dude we should hop on and talk but whatever I'm glad it fine it happened naturally how did this ha- yeah. did someone did someone tag us that's how it happened right someone tagged it on yeah, Twitter and, and was it. like Oh, that's so funny. Because we were talking about hot sauces. You posted about Frank's Red Hot, and we were just like, yes. <laughs> right. If you're talking about like an American vinegar-based hot sauce, it's obviously the superior one in flavor, in quality ingredients. And he said, you guys should talk about it on Steve's <laughs> podcast. So, But to answer your question, if you had hit me up, of course, I would have been like, hell yeah. Awesome. Okay. I'm so glad you asked. Because if people have asked before, and it's actually a huge compliment. Every motherfucker has a podcast. People don't want to just like take all this time to talk to somebody like if they don't value like something about them. So it's a huge compliment. So thank you, man. Yeah, yeah. cool. Well, I'm glad. And I'm I'm glad that so-and-so on Twitter thought to to uh, bug us about it. Because obviously we were both thinking like, that'd be cool. We just, none of us had the, neither of us had the guts to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm sorry we're not remembering your name, but yeah. most likely whoever linked us up for this, even though we're friends, <laughs> like, uh, thank you. Yeah. Because you're definitely listening to this. Shout so we out. appreciate you. Shout you out to you. you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nick. Yep.
Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.